Welcome to episode 103 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Krivat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at krivatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Chris Villarreal, president of Plugged In Strategies. Chris provides regulatory policy and technical consulting services to companies seeking a greater understanding and awareness of the evolution of the electricity market. He's a national speaker on topics of interest to regulatory and the electric industry, including grid modernization and rate design policy. Formerly, he was making policy magic happen at the California and Minnesota Public Utility Commissions. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm here with Chris Villarreal, president of Plugged In Strategies and former Minnesota and California Public Utilities Commission policy expert. Chris, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you, Lee. Thank you for inviting me. It's been great to talk with you and catch up with you again. This is going to be an interesting episode because I know in some ways you don't think of yourself as a climate champion, but I think we agreed that you are. It was interesting because you're you're right. I wouldn't ordinarily think of myself as a capital C climate champion as the other illustrative guests that you've had on this podcast before, because uh, I think my journey may be a little different to reaching that point in my career to to have you call me a climate champion. Well, this is going to be very interesting because I want to hear those things. With regards to climate change and being a climate change mitigation champion, what was your motivating moment? Where was the turning point? That's an excellent question because part of me, part of this path that leads me here is I don't know if there has been a pivotal moment that led me to this point. I think it's been more of a ongoing process of practice and impacts of policy that has resulted in a a nice union of my more market-based beliefs around electricity policy that are now in much more alignment with what is needed in the climate space to address climate change. So what I would say is that my background is more of enabling customer choice, enabling market development and deployment of renewables, which are now the most cost-effective resource out there, including energy efficiency and demand response, which are things I've always been in support of because those enable consumers to take greater control of their own consumption. But what now has developed over time as wind and as rooftop solar and community solar continues to decline in cost is I can support these market-based solutions knowing that these resources are the cheapest resources available to us to, to meet electricity demand, ensure reliability and resilience of our systems. And so we have a nice convergence of market-based preferences for meeting our needs. And at the same time, having these resources also be the most cost-effective ways to meet our needs today. What if it wasn't as good a price? What Don't we still need this stuff on the grid? Don't we need to deal with climate change and need clean energy? Oh, most definitely. So I would agree that we do need these resources today. And 
while it's great that they are the most cost-effective resources, I would agree that there are certainly mitigation strategies and needs to clean our resource mix today. And we know the effects that carbon is having on the atmosphere. We know that we need to reduce the amount of carbon that we emit, starting with the electricity system. And so you're correct that we need these resources anyway. It is an added benefit that these are now the most cost-effective resources available, which again, like I said, has a nice convergence with how I believe in markets and customer choice. But you're right. These resources are needed anyway. And I think the work that states, including California, to really drive the policy to make these resources the primary resources to meet our, our need has resulted in these substantial cost declines for wind and solar and the next few years storage so that we can remove coal and we can remove the expensive natural gas plants even faster than it would otherwise take. Even if it wasn't the least costly resource, the impact of climate change is starting to show how expensive that's going to be. And that has to factor into the equation anyway. But as you said, it's fantastic that the price has come down to where it's the way to go regardless. If we sort of think about these in different batches, right, we have these traditional energy efficiency and demand response resources that we've had for decades now that we sort of have been taking for granted for the most part for most of the country. States have goals for how much energy efficiency needs to be procured, how much demand response needs to be procured. But if you look across the country, a lot of the demand response that has been sitting out there since the 80s and 90s is largely used just to avoid capacity and they're never actually dispatched across the country. And you know those are examples where we've had the tools to meet a lot of these needs available to us for a long time, but we've never actually used them to the greatest extent we could use them. And now we have wind and solar that are at our disposal now. And I think the question is, how do we get these resources into the hands of the most amount of people, most efficiently and effectively as possible, and at least cost to, to society, which then has the additional impact of also then eliminating the amount of coal that, that gets put out in the atmosphere, avoiding new and more costly natural gas-fired peakers or diesel peakers, depending on the part of the country you're in. And what I'd like to say I'm seeing right now is a greater recognition that we have so many tools available to us that we don't need to continue to rely on the hammer. Now we have the scalpel. Now we have the particular size crescent wrench that we need to just address the need that we need and that we don't just need to hammer for everything. I love that. That correct tool is even the less expensive tool now. Yep. Do you have any personal drivers with regards to climate change? Another excellent question. I'm trying to come up with a good answer to this question that isn't I want my kids to live in a, in a better environment than the one I live. So I'm trying to come up with something that's, that's not as corny as that one. But that's not such a bad answer. It's not a bad answer, no. But I just don't want to use that as my fallback. So personal driver. So I try to take things logically. And so it's not really an emotional driver. It's more of a logical and reasoned driver. We know that climate change happens across history. The question has always been, to what extent is it that we as, as human beings are the ones causing this? And looking at the impacts that any one of us can make to minimize our overall impacts onto the climate, increasing the amounts of recycling that we can do, reducing our electricity consumption or shifting it to lower costs and, and time periods that make better use of, of renewable resources. I think it just becomes an overall effort by individuals to look at it holistically. I mean, that's another word I hate is holistically. 
because it's not just do this or do that. It's we have to do lots of things. And the key to making all this happen is to ensure that all these things we have to do are not disruptive. I think it has to be easy for people. And we're doing a lot of work behind the scenes to make it easy for people. But as it applies to like the personal drivers, it, it really is, you know, what are the little things that we can do every day? And if all of us could start doing these little things, then when you aggregate them all up, that becomes pretty powerful. When you meet people that don't believe the data and don't think climate change is something that we should be concerned about, how do you try to convince them otherwise? That's a great one. I find that that question particularly ch more challenging for someone like me because a lot of the people I work with and work for, there's no need to convince them. Uh, a lot of members of my family, you don't need to convince any of them about the importance of climate change and, and taking steps to address climate change. I think it becomes important, however, on the conversation with other people who take a different perspective of this to address their concerns, however they are, because as I've learned in other areas, it takes a lot to change people's minds when they have such a, uh, a belief in their perspective and being able to meet them where they are and meet them even halfway to open up the conversation on the topic goes a lot further in having a conversation rather than trying to belittle or demean them because they are holding beliefs opposite of yours. While I would agree that there's a, a strong need to present people with facts and signs and whatnot to try to convince them that this is happening, these are the reasons why this is happening, these are the effects of this happening, there is just as equally on the other side, very strong belief that their set of science is better than your set of science. And so to some extent, it becomes less of an actual scientific argument and more of a one-to-one -one discussion of, of what's important to you, what's important to me. Here's how we can work together to make sure that, you know, you want clean air, I want clean air. You want clean water, I want clean water. And putting the conversation in the context that is more understandable than science says we can't go above 1.5 degrees Celsius by some period in time or else something bad will happen. When you put things in such a stark terminology, then you sort of appeal to people's ability to understand the impacts of it. So if everything's going to collapse in 10 years because we can't keep worldwide temperatures below 1.5 degrees Celsius, then what is that person supposed to do? And I think going back to these taking these little steps, part of the conversation really is in my mind, talking with people, and, and I'll do this, talking with people and say, what matters to you? So it matters that you have clean air, clean water, that rain happens when it's supposed to happen, that the snowpack is what it's supposed to be on an annual basis, that everything that you knew growing up is going to continue going forward because that's the way the climate and the atmosphere and the way the earth is supposed to operate. And some of the things that we're doing have a substantial negative effect on that. And how can we all address that? Again, without necessarily mentioning the words climate change. So for example, we'll go to offices of particular parties and just bring up the words climate change. Um, we'll get you kicked out of their offices. So it's always a matter of putting the conversation in the appropriate context so that they can better understand what the effects of 
climate change are on the areas that matter to them. Farm yields, availability of, of water, availability of air, availability of resources to get us from here to there. And I think that becomes the important component of this conversation that, that I hope to bring along, ensuring that people understand these impacts without treating them poorly, because that's just not going to get us to have the conversation and then the solutions we need. Can you talk specifically about what you do to help mitigate climate change? Sure. So what I do is I work as a policy expert on electricity policy across many states, before many state commissions and, and on behalf of, of other advocates where I'll represent their interests before state regulatory commissions. And what I then do is I advocate for things like better distribution system planning, which sounds really weird if you're not familiar with the electricity world. But what it really is trying to get at is how do we have an electricity system that is prepared for increasing amounts of wind and solar, distributed energy resources and energy storage so that we can make use of those resources in a more effective and efficient manner. So what I'll do is I'll work with a state regulatory commission and we'll have workshops on what is the future of the electricity system. And a key component of that future electricity system is a future with more rooftop solar, with more electric vehicles, with more storage, with more wind. And how then is that system going to be planned, invested, and operated as we transition away from more central coal and gas fire power plants to ones that are more reliant upon wind and solar and storage, and then needs to be there to make sure it's reliable resilient and can meet the needs that we are looking for in society. So I'll work with state commissions to develop policies for that. I work with other environmental advocates around the country advocating on their behalf before state regulatory commissions, asking those commissions to develop policies that are focused on better integrating these resources into the system. So you'll have a utility, for example, that will have a plan for new investments in their distribution system. And what we'll come in and advocate for is how is that new infrastructure going to account for or be able to integrate with new rooftop solar? How is that infrastructure going to support the development of the adoption of electric vehicles or electric transportation? Because if that system is not built with an eye towards better utilization of cleaner resources, then the rate payers that utility are going to pay a lot for that first investment. And then as we continue this transition to greater amounts of, of solar and electric vehicles and wind, they'll need to make changes to that investment. So that's stranded money. That's money that the ratepayers pay for that they're not going to get the full return off of. Now that may be the benefit of the utility who makes a lot more money on the capital, but as it applies to the consumer, they have to pay twice. That's not efficient. So how do we make the system more efficient that leverages greater amounts of these new resources coming into the system. So that's the type of things I do. And it's complicated stuff and complicated to talk about. I know. <laughs> Can you talk about your prior background? Sure. So out of college, I, I moved to Washington, D.C. and spent nine years as a legal assistant or paralegal working on a variety of issues before the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission. Most of that time was spent on cases that, that came out of the 2000-2001 California energy crisis. That allowed me to stay busy for several years. In 2006, I moved uh, to California, which is where I'm originally from, 
and went to work for the California Public Utilities Commission. I was there for nine years. While there, I was able to work on a number of efforts, uh, including California PUC's proceeding on Smart Grid, which we would now all call grid modernization, but it was 2008, so that's what we called it. And many of those policies, I like to think, and I, and I hope that people agree with this, have laid the foundation for a lot more of the conversation that California's had since 2015 on distribution planning and integration of major resources. So I did work on that. I did work on uh, evolving demand response programs so that they were, they did allow aggregators to go in and sign up consumers to, again, grow and better utilize this resource that is a, a really valuable resource to avoid peak and to ship consumption onto cheaper time periods where more wind would be available. Then in 2015, moved to Minnesota, where I went to work for the Minnesota PUC, working on a lot of these same issues of, of rate design, grid modernization, and distribution system planning. Again, I guess I had the, the, the benefit of working in two states that have relatively, or California especially, uh, very aggressive views on the need to clean up our electricity systems. California being the leading state on emission reductions and, and move to renewables and, and Minnesota also having similar emission targets, more aggressive uh, more recently, but looking to greater reliance upon wind and solar resources across our state. Then since 2017, I've been out on my own advising state commissions and uh, other environmental groups and consumer advocates on these technical changes across the electricity system that we need to, to do in order to clean up our system and make these renewable resources a bigger part of our system. You like being out on your own? I like being on my own to an extent that, you know, there's, there's a bit more freedom involved. And so I can work across the country and help other states that, that want help. Because I have this experience working for two different state commissions, two different market structures, two different perspectives on how utilities operate and two different perspectives on how commissions operate, it allows me, I think, to see how things can be done in states regardless of, of location. That, I think, allows me the perspective to go in and, and talk to state commissions or, or talk with state commissions on, you know, what is your challenge? Here's what I've seen being able to work with other state commissions across the country and try to help help answer questions of what does all this mean? What's the type of timeline we should be thinking about? What are the questions that we need to ask? What is the vision that will help us get from where we are today to where we want to be tomorrow? And I can help them answer those questions and chart a path forward so that if a state is interested in cleaning up their electricity system or planning for greater amounts of electric vehicles or having problems with integrating rooftop solar or developing demand response programs that I can be a resource to them to help answer questions and, and help them develop those policies. How has the pandemic affected your business and what you do? Because of the work I tend to do of running workshops, meeting with people, clearly I have not been able to do any of those in person. So the transition from in-person to, to web-based uh, workshops has, has been a challenge and was a bit of a challenge in the early days. That's sort of been, has been the biggest challenge of not having that face-to-face -face interaction that one would expect. So it, it comes with its pros and cons, right? So the pro of it is that I don't have to get on a plane 
or drive somewhere to go to a meeting that's going to last three hours. So there's a pro of that. So it frees up more of my time, which is then freed up by other workshops because now everybody knows that the time is available. The other side of it, however, is I tend to think that meeting face-to-face and being able to be close to other people in these types of conversations has the opportunity to be more meaningful because there's only so much emotion and so much body language that can be transmitted over this medium that we have of, of webinars that we would otherwise be available to us if we were in person. Also, once this meeting is over, it's over and we're not, we don't hang around and, and linger in a meeting room or we meet up afterwards for, for a beer after that day's meetings to continue to talk and be able to continue to negotiate or try to narrow our differences of opinions in preparation for the next day's workshop. So I think some of that contact is lost not being able to meet person to person. I can tell you that not traveling has meant that I've been able to be home with my kids every day for the past two years. So when we all get up in the morning that my wife and I will get up with them and get them off to school, we'll drive them to school, and then uh, we'll be able to go get them in the afternoon and we'll be home every day to wake up with them and put them to bed and, and have dinner with them. That part of it is really great to be able to do that for the past two years. My kids are 12 and seven. So seeing them grow up through elementary and into middle school has been really good because before this, the prior two years before that, my wife and I were traveling. One of us was traveling most of the days of the month. And so we've been home now together for almost two years now. Can you talk about some of the setbacks you've had in your career? I guess I'll, I'll preface it by saying that a perspective I have is that we are all where we are supposed to be. So I wouldn't care as anything unless there's a setback. Everything is a lesson or there's a reason why something happened. So I wouldn't necessarily characterize any, anything in my career as a setback. I was not afforded certain opportunities that I think I really, really would have liked to have had, but as a result, other things happen. So, you know, the proverbial, when a, when a door closes, a window opens. I would like to think that moving to DC, ending up where I was at law firms and the energy practice of law firms, was a tremendous opportunity. And at the time, living in DC in the late 90s uh, was an amazing time. And then that led me to work in the California Commission. And the time I had the California Commission was, was great. And I learned a lot of stuff and was able to learn a lot about the regulatory practice from the perspective of the California Commission. The jokes I say is that looking out at the other 49 state commissions that I had the great misfortune of spending nine years the California Commission, because what I then <laughs> found out is California Commission is, is a rather unique commission amongst all the commissions in the country. Again, I wouldn't call them setback. I just call them lessons learned because coming from one state commission, another state commission, I did not have the full appreciation that there are different ways of doing things in each of the state commissions. So that was a tremendous lesson that I've, that I've learned. If I didn't spend the time in the Minnesota commission, you know, I wouldn't be where I am now talking with you and being able to talk about the transition I've had from where I was in the past to where we are now, where I've had this ability to, to bring these worlds together into, into one coherent message that, that, that I hope to be able to share. So again, I wouldn't say I've had any setbacks. I've had tremendous opportunities that wouldn't otherwise have been available to me. Can you talk about the successes you're most proud of? One of the, the projects I was able to work on while I was on Minnesota Commission staff, I was um, staff chair of a staff subcommittee that was created by by NARUC. And NARUC is the National Association of Regulatory Utility Commissioners, and they're the trade association for all the state commissions. 
what I was tasked with was overseeing the development of a document that is that's called the Distributed Injury Resources Rate Design and Compensation Manual. And I think that that document was one of the first comprehensive documents looking at the rate design and then how to compensate distributed injury resources provided and made available to state commissions. And it was written for state commissions. I think that there's a lot of good material in there that is still informative and still relevant to the conversation of how to plan for distributed energy resources, what are the impacts of distributed energy resources on rate design, and how to pay for it. So I'd call that one of my great successes. Another one that I think was a success was the development of the California Public Utility Commission's data privacy and data access rules that uh, I helped oversee as staff of the California PUC. Those were passed in 2011. That order led to the creation of a standard called the Green Button Standard, which uh, is a standardized way to allow, <laughs> you're laughing at that one. Well, I remember when Anish Chopra put his arm around me and said, Lee, I want you to be the first utility at SDG&E to agree to do the Green Button. And I said, yeah, I could do the Green Button. And then I went back and talked to my developers and they said, Lee, that is not easy to do. I said, sure it is. Let me code it. Sure it is. And so, you know, that that rule was passed in 2011. And then, yes, you were called uh, by the White House and you guys agreed to do it. And I, and I will say that I, I don't think it's too too far of a stretch to say that no other state has issued as comprehensive a rule or framework as California did. And that was 10 years ago now. And so as I go around and talking to people, you know, what are the big things I've done? In my mind, those are the two biggest things that I, that I, I had a substantial role in developing. When you look out at the future, 20, 30 years from now, what do you see? Hopefully retirement. Um, <laughs> hopefully looking out the window, overlooking a, a lake or a river or, or something. I'll move in next to you, Lee. I hope that river is not flooding. Yeah, hopefully the river is not flooding or that there is a river there, there to, to look at or a lake to look at. You know, I was thinking about this the other day, not, not necessarily in the context of this, of this question, but I was just thinking about the, sorry, I'm going to get philosophical here. You can go for it. So the Wright brothers flew the first heavier than, than air vehicle, what, 1903, 1904, somewhere around there. And then 60 years later, we put a man on the moon. And now it's been almost 60 years since then. Oh, and, and then we had flight. Then we had commercial flight. And we put people in space, put people on the moon. Cars were first developed in the late, 19, in the late 1800s. And we still have the car today. And I'm just trying to think back of, you know, we have such technological innovation that takes place. It sort of fits and starts. I've been thinking more and more about this, about what is it that, that is going to be that thing in 10 years, in 20 years that will just be there. So I was born in the mid seventies. So I had, a, I had a rotary dial telephone that was provided to us by Pacific Bell. And then the late eighties, early nineties, we got our computer and then we connected to AOL. And so I still remember the broadband connection at 14.4 and plugging into the phone line and hearing the, the modem go off. And then realizing that my generation is the last one that knows about that, but then also has spent a lot of our life with technology, like being able to communicate with you over, over this medium. And then there's a whole bunch of people behind me that don't have that transition period. And so it gets me to think like, 
are my kids or are their grand or are my grandkids going to be that transition period generation where they remember world of one way and then the next generation doesn't remember that world. Sometimes what I think about is, is how are we going to deal with these transitions and what are those transitions going to be? Are we actually going to be able to go to space? Are we going to be able to go to the moon? Are we going to be able to Mars? Are we going to come up with new types of, of vehicles like the Jetsons that are flying in the air? Because I don't know. I just know that historically we have big bursts of innovation. The internet was a big burst of innovation and the internet economy was a big burst of innovation. As it applies to what we're talking about, one of the things that I'm hopeful of, and maybe this is a better way to answer your question, is that we do have a better electricity system that is more innovative, is more user-friendly, allows for greater communication and connections and connectivity amongst people. I think of the future electricity system as a network, as that platform system, that new devices and new innovations and new technologies and new ways for us to engage with another can, can be uh, developed upon. That it's not just a, a line that's above our house or buried in our front or backyard that we have no interaction with, that new opportunities are built upon that platform for value to be created for society to have a better system and a better future. So that's the kind of things I'm thinking about is how does that happen? And that's where I like to see this conversation in the next 20, 30 years as we've identified and built upon that architecture where we have the electricity system as this platform for us to engage and share and interact with. As you answered that question, the thought that popped in my mind for a a place for innovation is waste management, that we have to figure out how to do everything we do today because people aren't going to give it up, but in a way that doesn't create the byproducts that are destroying the world. Yeah, we're seeing that a bit in in trying to figure out our supply chains, right? Because, you know, you you live in San Diego and just up the road from you is a port of Long Beach and and there's hundreds of boats sitting offshore because they can't get into the port of Long Beach or the port of LA. That has downstream impacts because now we can't get the things we want. So how do we address the supply chain? How do we address the waste? How do we create a more efficient system so that we can minimize that waste and not throw away? To, to bring it back to an electricity conversation, right? If you have rooftop solar today in many states, if you have a, an outage, you can't use that solar. There's good reasons in the past why that was happening for safety reasons, because you don't want the person working in the line to get electrocuted. But we have technology that can ensure that that doesn't happen. So that's wasted electricity because it's, it's an otherwise sunny day and there's someone to knock down a power line. And it's wasted electricity when you need it most, when there's an outage on the grid. There's an outage on the system, yeah. I know that probably wasn't where you're getting at, but that's waste. And we know the electric system has to be balanced in real time. And dips in demand mean there must be dips in supply to, to make sure we manage it. But then we have wasted electricity. How do we best minimize that waste? Be that electricity or water. Water is another big thing that we that is another concern of mine. Growing up and living in California for a long time, and, and normalizing droughts. You know, that's I don't know if that's a good way to think about it. Just recognizing the scarce resource that water is, without you know assuming it's always going to be, be there. That's another. You know, how do you minimize waste in the system of something that is really important for survival of us and the planet? But I would agree with you, Lee, that how we can use the technologies and platforms available to us to minimize waste in the system 
whether it's electrons or actual garbage, how do we minimize that to create a much more efficient system at, at a lower cost? Has the pandemic changed your view of the future? I cannot wait to travel again. I cannot wait to go out and see the world because there is so much of this world to go out and explore. I would hate to have a result of the pandemic mean we shouldn't travel, that we should be afraid to travel, that it's too risky to travel. I think as a species, we, we, are, we don't like to be chained regardless of who's provide, whoever is chaining us. So that's one thing I hope does not happen, which I, unfortunately I think there's in the short term, perhaps a risk of that. The other thing the pandemic has shown is that we are really bad at evaluating risk and our sources of how we then evaluate risk are also really poor, regardless of sort of how you view it. You know, there's all these studies that are like, certain group of people overestimate the risk of getting COVID, uh, like 50% of people get COVID end up in the hospital. And you have another side of the people who overestimate other components of COVID response. And neither one of these groups are right. They're just cherry picking the solutions from their preferred resource, from their preferred media outlet, from their preferred person they want to hear from. So I guess the risk of the lessons learned from the, from the pandemic is that we are becoming way too politicized to bring back to a theme from the very beginning of our conversation, is that I think we're becoming overly politicized and are not willing to actually engage with people like we are supposed to be. Whether or not you or I agree on one thing, we are able to have a conversation because we are people and we engage and we are social beings. Just because you may listen to one source of news does not mean I shouldn't, I should never talk to you again. That's just not how it's supposed to work. It can't work that way. It can't work that way. And so if, if that is one of the results of this pandemic is just it continuing politicization uh, into our little bubbles, then I think that that would be a huge negative. I don't think that would be a benefit to anybody. Do you have any advice for people that want to help? First and foremost, I think you have to, everyone has to get out of their bubble. From my experience, this basic part of my work is not to solve climate change, which is why I always didn't view myself as a, as a climate champion. It has a very important component, however, in my perspective, that it does impact and hopefully minim and mitigates climate change. But if I talk to someone and if their perspective was, if you're 100% if you're not working to minimize climate change, I don't want to talk to you, you are part of the problem. That's not a solution because there are lots of ways to solve this issue. It's not one solution. We have to have lots of solutions, lots of ways to minimize this because if we're just focused on the one tool in our toolbox, then we're gonna have a lot of problems because that might not be the tool we want, but that's the only tool that someone wants to leverage. So getting out of your bubble, making sure you talk to people and open up your circles to talk to people of other perspectives, of other politics, of other parts of the world. If you are just you know, sitting in, in your city talking to people who all agree with you, go out to the suburbs, go out to the country, go out to other states and try to have an honest conversation with them and figure out where are the areas of agreement, where are the opportunities for progress to be made, even if it isn't your one preferred solution, there may be other things you haven't thought of because you are in your bubble. And by building bridges, we have the opportunity to have greater impacts on change. From where I sit, going to work for the California Commission, going to work for the Minnesota Commission has really brought some perspective because looking at it from the cold perspective of what the market forces mean and how do we 
allow market forces to, to work, that means that I don't look at questions around equity or ease of access to resources or availability of, of resources, because I just look at what the market should provide. But being part of these conversations with groups of people that I otherwise may not have engaged with, now I can see that, okay, market solutions may be my preferred source of, of meeting a need, but that's not necessarily going to be the best need for everybody. That markets may not be the best solution for providing access to underserved areas. Markets may not be the best way in the short run to provide these services to everyone. They might get us a long way, but they're not going to get us all the way. And so that's a perspective I never really would have contemplated if I hadn't been in areas that challenged the way I was thinking, that offered me new insights into areas that I hadn't otherwise thought about or would have been introduced to. I knew you a long time ago. We had real debates with regards to EVs and how we were going to get them into some neighborhoods and others. And I also prefer market-based solutions, but some things aren't going to happen just based on the market unless we change the market rules somehow, like, like a carbon tax. Carbon tax is, is a tool, certainly. Talking about my evolution, right? Because in my mind, the market-based solution was cap and trade because those are quote market-based solutions. Making the market work by putting mm -hmm. new values on things. Yeah, yeah, so exactly. That the market is not appropriately allocating or identifying a value. It's undervaluing and overvaluing things. And regulators in particular have opportunities to, I'll use the word nudge, but perhaps guide markets to address these underserved or these undervalued areas. And there are tools that, that regulators have through, through monopoly utilities and through the enabling competition to help move markets and solutions in ways that are beneficial to all, all customers, not just to a select subset. Do you have any questions for me? No, I don't know if I have any questions. I, just, I appreciate you calling me a climate champion. And I think that's something that has not always been front and center of, of the work I've done. I fully recognize that it has their benefits. And uh, maybe it's just a, a personal thing coming around to just embracing that the work that I am doing and that I hope I'm helping formulate it is uh, addressing climate change in a proactive and beneficial manner. So I just want to thank you for having this conversation. You are very welcome. And on that note, I'm going to wrap this up with a wrap. It's not often used, and that's the catch. We don't often use DR Dispatch. You're very proud of your work on data access rules, and you think we can be climate change because we have the right tools. These tools can help us avoid the destruction carbon brings, and that's why we have to have lots and lots of things. You rely on logic, and that is why your wife says you don't have an emotional tie. When you talk to people about this, you don't want it to get dark, but the terminology we use is often very stark. If you use the term climate change, your opportunity you might miss, you guarantee we'd get kicked out of many an office. Now here in Minnesota and in California, what you did was ensured policies so that people could integrate resources with the grid to have fairness in integrating renewables to make it fair and fine. You wrote a document you're proud of on rate design. Many years ago, it was called electric innovation, then smart grid, now grid modernization. If we only have one 
way. We're going to get in trouble. We have to build bridges, get out of our own bubble. You're really passionate about this. That's easy to tell. You communicated your points very, very well. Thank you very much, Chris Villarreal. That was amazing, Lee. Is that stuff you learned from uh, your, your improv classes? It was interesting to hear Chris talk about how his focus on market solutions collided with the equity and fairness issues we are seeing in society today. And even more interesting to hear about how, as a regulator and by working with regulators, market and fairness incompatibilities can be addressed to benefit all of society. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. There was a time back when I was leading SDG&E Smart Grid Organization and Chris was at the California Public Utilities Commission where we disagreed about the details of how to get grid modernization done. I'm sure we still disagree about many specifics, but we both also understand that we're on the same team when we're working to mitigate climate change.